Welcome to BDO in the Boardroom, a podcast series for board of directors and those charged with governance. Each episode features a topical discussion with board peers and subject matter experts on both trending and timeless boardroom issues, covering a myriad of issues including, but not limited to, mitigating risk in the increasingly digital world, navigating your board career, from landing your first board seat to succession planning in support of the next generation, to other top of mind issues such as ESG reporting, shareholder activism, and the insights we share through the BDO Center for Corporate Governance and Financial Reporting. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes or Spotify. Let's get started. I'm Amy Rojic, Director of BDO Center for Corporate Governance, and I'm so happy to have the chance to sit down with Gloria Cord Larson today to discuss what board members should be focused on and communicating about with respect to their company's sustainability activities around environmental, social governance, or ESG. So Gloria is a prominent attorney, public policy expert, and business leader. And from 2007 to 2018, she served as president of Bentley University and then went on to be an honorary president in residence for Harvard University Graduate School of Education. She currently serves on the boards of UNAM, a Fortune 500 NYSE-listed insurance company, and Boston Private, a NASDAQ-listed wealth management trust and private banking company, as well as a private company, Reach Hire, a company committed to creating work environments to help women return to work, thrive, advance, lead, and stay. She also serves on Christie Campus's health board, a telehealth company dedicated to the mental health for college students. So Gloria is also a published author and active member in the National Association of Corporate Directors, New England chapter. Gloria, thank you so much for joining us today. Amy, I'm thrilled to join you. You and I have been working together on a number of NACD programs, and it's really fun to do this with you in particular. So thank you for that, Gloria. And we recently worked together in developing a panel discussion for the NACD New England that you just mentioned. And that featured Ron O'Hanley, CEO of State Street, Mo Cowan, GE Board of Director, Bob Hurth, Vice Chair of the SASB, and yourself as the moderator on the topic of boards doubling down on ESG. And as a participant, I found the dialogue in that event one of the best I've heard around the confusing landscape of ESG activities aimed at driving long-term value creation. So perhaps as we get started here today, maybe we begin with the why now, and perhaps you can share some of the key messaging and takeaways from that session I just mentioned. Amy, I think um, this really has been a pivotal year. I feel like a lot of companies, um, certainly the large cap companies who might have been um, reluctant joiners uh, to the deep end of the pool on ESG, but also mid caps and smaller companies and even private companies are really thinking hard through the lens of the pandemic. What made companies, some companies thrive um, and maintain their resilience their business continuity, while others really floundered. And it's drawn a big circle around the S in ESG. For a long time now, companies have been focused on environmental impact, climate change's accepted reality. Um, and so, so that was a given. And of course, governance has always been around. For public companies, it's been, you know, the sort of the capstone of defining that you have an effective board and effective oversight capability. But the S has been elusive. It's almost been, uh, I think, too closely tied to corporate social responsibility, um, meaning that it was a nice to do and something important, but not necessarily a set of, of issues that you fully integrate as risks into your business model, into your strategy. Um, thinking about long-term sustainability. And I think that's what happened this year. The pandemic, it put in cleat lights, if you will, the health and well-being of your employees, um, it, the social uh, justice protests um, that resulted from the George Floyd murder and years of injustice put a big target around what in the world are you doing about gender, race, and ethnicity equality within your companies. Uh, and I think even more than that, there were other factors that sort of weighed in in almost an overwhelming way. When you think about the major cyber attacks we've seen this year, all of these things are bundled under as key elements of the S, the social impacts and risks that companies can face. And I think now uh, it's something that the major uh, asset managers have been talking about for five years now, saying, pay attention to gender equality, pay attention to race and ethnicity. These things are going to import, be important for your sustainability over the longer term and for value creation for your shareholders. And I think 
people in companies, directors really get that now. And I think that we're going to see, as this is going to emerge as issues in the proxy season, I think we're going to really see that it's being driven both externally by those major investors who've said for a long time, BlackRock, SSGA, and Vanguard, these are things you have to be thinking about, not just in terms of your company's values, but about long-term value. Um, I think you'll recall from our conference, uh, our our pro the program we just did, that uh, that Ron O'Hanley put a real solid focus on this is about long-term value. It is not about your view of your company's values doing well by doing social good. This is all about how will you be resilient over the long run? How will you have growth potential coming out of hard times? It's hard to imagine a period of time more like the one we've just endured in terms of making that perfectly clear. So I think companies, I think, you know, I've seen data that says that some 80% of companies, um, the, certainly the large companies, and but mid-sized and smaller ones too, get it. But the, so the why is clear. Now it's all about the how. And I think everybody struggles, even those who feel like they've been on the ESG journey for a while, feel, I know, my large cap company feels that way. It's a journey. It's something that we'll be trying to make better and better and deepen into our strategy um, over many years to come. And it'll be an evolving process. But for those just starting out or those who are sort of in the middle thinking, I just don't can't get my arms around it. It is a broad topic and it's also pretty amorphous. Um, I'm the first to admit I'm constantly having to rethink sort of what fits into these categories. No, agreed. And I, I, I think I think oftentimes we think of the G and the S as kind of intertwined, I would say, um, especially when it comes to human capital, because whether you're talking about how your board is composing itself or how you're looking at your entity more broadly and how your people policies, if you will, are trickling down throughout the organization, I think there's a lot of crossover in terms of what we term human capital management. But let's let's go back because you, you made an interesting point and there, there's a framework that we heard in that NACD presentation that Ron brought out that I thought was truly meaningful. And I know that you work with him and that's something that really resonated with a lot of the folks on that call. And I think it made a lot of practical sense. And I think it's a good kind of, to your point, starting place for the many companies, the many folks that are probably tuning in this call, just kind of, where do I even begin? So let, let's hear your thoughts on that, if you don't mind. Sure. So one of the things that Ron brought up is sort of a way to think about the how is um, what's important to your company under each of these categories, the E, the S, and the G. Well, you already know about the G. You know that how you structure your board, how you think about business ethics, how you think about um, an overarching uh, set of, of protocols around compensation as executive compensation, that these things have been long the purview of a, the board. Again, as I suggested earlier, environmental concerns have been around for a long time. And uh, with things like the, you know, uh, um, thinking about uh, long-term sustainability in terms of, of responsible investing, the investors have brought this, you know, to the forefront for many years now. Um, but getting to the S, how do you get your arms around sort of the materiality of all of these things for your company? Because you can't boil the ocean. Um, I read one funny line from a director who said, look, if you think you're going to boil the ocean to distill, you know, to distill this down to its essence, um, you're going to be working on that forever. But you are going to have to pick some lobsters and cook them <laughs> out, of, out of the ocean. So, so, so you have to look through the lens of your own company. Look through the lens of your products and services. Um, look through the lens of your stakeholders, clearly your investors. So look internally. Do an inventory of what you're already doing. I would say that virtually every company I know is already doing a lot of things that fit under the framework of E, S, and G, including that S. 
but they've not defined it in ways, even though they're essential to their operations, they're essential to their customers, essential to their employees. They're not talking about it in terms of ESG and how that's incorporated into their longer term strategy. So I think the starting place is, for heaven's sakes, do an inventory of what you're already doing. And there are then ways to test that with a framework. Um, Ron was great to single out the SASB framework. So if you use the Sustainability Accounting Standards um, Board framework and, and later use their disclosure um, standards, it's a great way to sort of start to pigeonhole. Yeah, these things work for my, because it's industry sector specific, it's so helpful. Insurance companies, you can look and see, and you can relate it to peers and what they're doing. Um, similarly, for our oil and gas, I mean, there are going to be definitions for whatever type of company um, you happen to be part of. Uh, but beyond that, the other thing I would suggest when you're sort of getting your arms around this is take advantage of State Street's asset management arm, SSGA, they do the R-factor analysis. And both of my for-profit um, public company boards have used it. It's so great because it comes with no penalty. ISS will give you your scores and you can look behind that to see what data they're looking for. What are the indicators under the ES and the G that lead them to score you a certain way against, and of course it's done against um, scoring your peers as well. Um, but that's so that's sort of a broad overview if you want. But it's it's punitive because unless you're then building your case to match what they're telling you to match, um, you're not going to see your scores improve. Our the R, R factor analysis by State Street is just terrific because it is behind the scenes. They will do this for you um, and tell you your score and how you relate globally to peers within your sector um, without ever disclosing any of it. So again, materiality is for years to define. And what's crucial is that you also get an external read on that. Um, that means please talk with your investors. Don't just tell them what you're doing and what you think is material. Ask them what they think is material. They're certainly going to tell you um, if you if you ask, and you are at risk if you're not asking your primary investors. I'd also urge you to look inside your company and talk to your employees at all levels, certainly senior management. Uh, it gives ownership throughout the company for all believing that ESG is important and that they're lending their ideas as to what's is what's material. Yeah, so, so I heard I heard a bunch of things right there. So just to kind of bring that full circle. So you have in one corner, you have frameworks for how a company can look at their own organization and pick out material, impactful things that they should be focused on throughout. And whether that's the SASB framework, which is, as you point out, industry-based, it's kind of an intuitive thing to use. It has um, a handful of metrics by industry. And then there's all, obviously, the whole alphabet soup of the other frameworks out there with GRI and IRC and everything else. And that's a whole nother episode for our show <laughs> on how all of these major um, frameworks are attempting to converge toward a global standard, but we're not there yet. So because we're not there yet, you have, you know, kind of your first decision process, but then you also raise the point that beyond the frameworks for what companies are using, you have, proxy advisors, you have other institutional investors inventing their own way of rating companies. And that's sort of beyond the control of the actual company. But I think your advice is very sound in engaging those raters and understanding what they're looking at, why they're looking at them, and how do you stack up? What, what does this rating mean? I don't think you have to put your whole, you know, eggs in one basket to, to really, you know, focus only on that. But your point really is salient about looking broadly across all of your stakeholders, of which your investors, your suppliers, your employees, your customers, like all of those really count in this. So I just wanted to kind of make that point because you gave us a lot of information. So hopefully everyone's following that, you know, maybe not used to all the terminology yet. So sorry to interrupt, but no, I think those are excellent points. And <laughs> I will tell you, I don't know a single company now that over the last decade hasn't increasingly looked to their customers, to their clients 
to figure out what's most important to them. ESG, for sure, should be right at the top of that list of concerns. They're, they're going to be telling you anyway if they feel like your practices don't match up to theirs. You mentioned suppliers. For heaven's sakes, if you're looking at materiality of ESG within your own company, you better be looking at the materiality of some of these factors for your suppliers. Because if they're not living up to environmental standards or doing uh, something in the human rights you know, or human um, capital management arena, um, that is backsplash on you. So these are all important things for both risk analysis and also to give you more opportunities. And then the sort of what ties into this is, so who oversees this at the highest level? Well, that's essentially the board's responsibility, as it is with company finances, with um, the company strategy. You know, you're supposed to fly at that 50,000 foot and keep, you know, your, your sort of your your fingers sort of out of dabbling too much in the weeds. Um, but when it comes to this, somebody needs to own it on the board. Um, it can be the full board, uh, but I was sort of dismayed to see that uh, a large number of companies still don't have any particular, at least they're not reporting that anybody on the board, including the full board actually owns the ESG. It's like, oh yeah, we do some things related to ESG, but it's not included as part of the purview. It's not written into any charters. Uh, so I personally have an opinion that out of the starting gate, um, I think this is the majority opinion to date that the governance committee, which already owns, so NomGov, which already happens to own the G, <laughs> is sort of a nice place to start. I do already see in my own companies that human capital, absolutely, comp human capital owns key elements of this as we move farther down into the company to look at diversity and inclusion and human capital management more broadly, um, health and welfare of our employees. Um, and I think uh, I think it's going to be you know essential to also think about audit and risk. If you've got a separate risk committee, as many companies do now, these cross, they're, they're cross elements um, that are equally and should be integrated in the various committees. I do think, though, that one committee needs to have that overarching umbrella responsibility. Um, some companies, particularly who've been in this a long time, particularly those who have subsidiaries, uh, companies in the EU, already have standing sustainability committees. I think for many companies, that's a bit of a reach too far right now. Um, put it in a committee that you're already comfortable with, like governance. And I say that but out of fear that it could get siloed off in one that's designated just sustainability. Um, so when you own it, whether it's governance or human capital, the full board, put it in a charter so that your outside interested parties like your investors see it something that'll be in the proxy should be something that's readily available to outside parties who are going to have, as we know, that continuous interest in what you're doing. And then the last thing I'd say about this particular aspect, um, sort of the, the ownership at the board level, is make sure you have the right folks reporting from management to you on the topic, because somebody in the company or some bodies have to be responsible for ESG and need to be reporting. Um, at UNUM, um, for example, we have a full-time sustainability director. Um, she reports through our general counsel at the company and they both report to it directly into governance. ESG is always the first topic on our agenda at every governance meeting. I then report out to the full board. That's just one model. Everybody should have their own model and many companies can't yet have full-time folks working on the issue, but uh, some people within your company will already own aspects of this. And if you can figure out that right person to be accountable, maybe it's somebody in senior management who can sponsor ESG, um, but they need to be reporting in credible ways with the right data to the right committee at the board level so that your oversight is meaningful. No, that, that's excellent advice. And I, and I like what you're saying about being very clear in the responsibility lines among the committees of the board. So if you're allocating out, so for example, you're talking, starting with a non-gov committee, but when it trick, trickles over to the audit committee, a lot of that falls through the processes, the controls around gathering the information that's gonna ultimately be used to report out your sustainability metrics, et cetera. So whether that's internally or you're sharing that publicly, that becomes sort of the audit committee's purview, right? So really understanding that I think is, is clearly an, an important aspect. 
And then I think we're going to get to it in a few minutes. But then considering the compensation committee, how are you managing this? And I think that's another prong to this. So maybe while I teed that up, maybe I'll I'll, I'll go there and ask, you know, how is your company going about ensuring, you know, the accountability for all of this work? What does that look like? Yeah, the accountability does have to reside someplace. And um, if you know if you've already got it designated at the at the appropriate level um, for the board, um, you got to think about how your senior management team, um, the CEO, how folks own this, and how they're incented to ensure that these things are actually being woven into your strategy. You know, we can also talk in a couple of minutes about what's strategic and what's versus just doing this in a tactical sort of you know reactive way to the current um, you know cultural times that we're in. Um, but but one of the ways you avoid that, that this is kind of a, oh yeah, nice to do and we're addressing um, gender equality, for example. If somebody in the company's not being, and some bodies throughout the company aren't being incentivized through um, compensation, we know with everything else they do in the company, that that's the link to ensuring that it's getting done appropriately. Um, and of course, the human capital committee, the comp committee is the one that actually owns that. And so you're starting to see more and more companies lodge responsibility from, you know, in terms of compensation um, with, within their long-term and immediate compensation plans. And I think that's a trend that's going to really escalate it's going to accelerate quickly. It's not being necessarily identified and pulled out by, you know, a preponderance of companies to date, but I think we're going to definitely see that escalate. And part of that is because, once again, the major investors are asking about it. They're going to want to see um, your data. They're going to want to see that when they tell you, in fact, this proxy season, we're going to be seeing a lot of investors say, well, okay, so your comp plan, um, this was a year that called everything into consideration in terms of your, your business continuity and resilience. Talk to us about how you're compensating um, your senior management team and in particular your CEO. And is this part of it? Um, is diversity and inclusion part of it? So that's a trend that will escalate. No, I, I got you. So, so you you brought up something that I don't want to discount, and you, you said strategic versus tactical. <laughs> give me a little, give me a little more on your thoughts around that. I think um, you know, really, we saw Vanguard, SSGA, and um, BlackRock really five years ago. 2015, this train was leaving the station. And yes, it was very focused on the environment and gender equality. Those were the things that sort of moved quickly out of the station on the train. Um, and I think that um, companies who saw it as responsive to what investors wanted, okay, we're going to add some women to the board. Okay, we're going to do something. That had, you know, of course, that was an imperative but that has little to do with actually thinking thoughtfully, again, about what's material to your company under each of these buckets, integrating those things that are material into your company operations, clearly into your business strategy, both now for your, your companies um, and then over the long term. Is this something that, and the way that that I think best emerges for companies, the difference between strategic and tactical is if you look through a risk lens. If this becomes part of your enterprise risk management system, um, if it's a you know if it's a set of emerging risks, if it's a set of current risks, if it's all identified under that umbrella, as well as strategically important in terms of opportunities for you to seize because it's better for your customers, you're going to be able to bring products and services to bear that reflect um, these new re realities. I think this starts to make you have that mental picture that this is indeed incredibly important from as a set of strategic imperatives. And I think that we shouldn't lose the point that this is about long-term sustainability and value because it's easy to say, well, you know what, right now, this isn't all that strategic for me because I got to report my quarterly returns you know, in, in a few days or in a few months. And it's this year that, you know, I got the analysts of, you know, I'm every day seeing what they're writing about it. I'm sorry. These are kind of things that I can put aside for now. And I think the evidence is growing. And Ron O'Hanley really brought that to bear in our conversation when he's talked about the study that that. State Street did with a prominent um, researcher professor at H HBS around this. And he found coming out into the pandemic, 
when we saw stocks you know, fall dramatically in March, the latter part of March, that the companies who had the least losses were those who had demonstrated um, that they already understood ESG and that things like their human capital management, they were managing that the pandemic's impact on the welfare, the health and welfare of their population on their labor management policies. They were responding to the needs of a workforce that was suddenly had to be remote and the things that that required. They were responding a few months later to what happened with the George Floyd murder and the subsequent um, protests. Uh, it was that level of resilience that was noted in the data about in terms of their financial performance. Talk about resilience. If you can get through this and prove that you would have had greater, and, and you need that collective data. And we don't yet have significant um, numbers of research studies because I think it's hard five years out of the starting gate to really see that impact. But I know that State Street also took a look at the companies that came out of the Great Recession in 2010, 11, and 12. And those companies also showed that they, they were paying attention to the social factors that impact their, their company in terms of risk, um, as well as the environment and obviously governance structure, um, that they were performing better through, you know, again, those very dark and difficult days. Well, similarly, this has really, I think, put much more clearly in really cleat lights, if you will, how critically important those factors are around your human capital management in particular. Um, but I'd also say that it's drawn a deeper circle around things like cybersecurity and privacy, because we're seeing the losses that companies face if they weren't addressing that well enough within the company. And that's another S. Right. No, absolutely. Absolutely. So we've talked a lot about thinking strategically if you have the right committees focused on this at the board level, let's talk about the outward viewpoint. So you have all of the, you know, we, we, we've talked to them, we've talked about them at nauseum at this point, but you have all of the investors looking at this. You have the media looking at this. You have politicians looking at this. You have regulators looking at this. So how does a company go about to consider what is material I want to report external? How is this useful? How, how can it be comparable? How can I make this consistent? What are the, all those factors that, you know, companies have to think about? You know, it is such a good point because if you're not able to demonstrate that you're walking your talk, and that means metrics, that means putting your messaging out with both qualitative and quantitative descriptions of what you're actually doing and putting it out in all the right places. Because I think, you know, this goes back to ISS. I learned personally within the last five years what we needed to do in terms of raising our ISS scores right at the very beginning of even thinking about all of this five years ago. It was like, oh my gosh, we're not really focused on that external, you know, what are they, if they can't see, we were already doing say 50, 60% of what we were getting downgraded for not doing compared to our peers. And I realized looking at some reports, for example, with Unum of other insurance companies, well, look, they've just put out a sustainability report rather than a corporate social, you know, corporate social responsibility report. And in that report, They've labeled these things and put sort of box scores, if you will, off to the side, showing what their emissions look like, what they've been doing in terms of, you know, other environmental concerns, um, the, what they're doing with human capital, um, with DEI, for example, so their diversity and inclusion, as well as clearly their governance structure. And I thought, you know what, at Unum, we're actually doing more than that. <laughs> so we haven't put it out in the same way. And I'm just using that as one example. And I think that's true across the board. So you need to, first of all, you need to be clear about your metrics. Um, a lot of this is about intangible things that you do. So like intellectual property. So there will be a lot of qualitative descriptions about what you do, but also the things that you can measure, the metrics that you can show, your journey to use a, a comment that you made earlier to me, this really is a journey. Your ability to show the milestones and the progress you're making is what external parties of all types are looking for, but they need to be able to find the information. And you raised a really good point about consistency, must be accurate, has to be transparent, has to be consistent across the places you're messaging in. And at the same time, um, that's really hard. And part of the reason it's really hard is there's been no set of overarching standards. 
about how best to report your data. Um, we know now the places, most likely places you should be placing your data. Um, but beyond that, um, this ability to have predictability with a set of standards in terms of what you're disclosing um, that uniformly apply across your sector. That's why the big three asset managers have all been saying for several years now, why don't you use the SASB and the TCFD, um, the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures? Um, if you use those two frameworks right now, you will have that uniformity that others might not have um, in, in at least getting to your audiences. And it's, and it's information that all the audiences you just mentioned will recognize and understand. Um, and the good news is, as you know, we're about to see SASB merge with the International Integrated um, Reporting Council. That's a hallelujah moment because as I understand it, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, I think GRI and CDP are also partners in that effort. So this coalescing around a set of standards is a really important thing. The piece that's then going to still be missing is where do we get the external assurance that all of this is accurate? Um, because I can produce material and numbers, metrics that relate to these standards and the right disclosures in the right places and still have my external parties say, hmm, how do I know that you're not greenwashing some of this? You're not you know, exaggerating what you're doing. Um, so Long story short, if we can then get us that next layer, uh, just as we have, you know, with FASB, with the, you know, with accounting standards, if we can get to that with ESG standards, so that we have that external audit capability. Um, I know at least at Unum we're using internal audit, and for example, when we did our first, we took last year the 2019 um, sustainability report, which we call our ESG report, um, was built on what we've been doing for many, many years around a CSR report, but we turned it into the right, broader, um, deeper version of ESG. And we used both GRI standards last year, along with um, making sure that we got external assurances around what we were reporting in terms of our environmental impact. So you can sort of do this yourself, but that takes a lot from com for companies. So the hallelujah moment will come when we have both the standards for disclosures and the reporting um, and the assurance standards. Now, I agree. <laughs> I agree with that. And there is a lot of movement. And I think we need all need to stay tuned on what's happening in the standard setting world, because globally here in the U.S., there's a lot of moving parts that we're all keeping a very close watch on. So one thing I want to get to, because I know we're going to have a lot of uh, folks on this audience that are on the smaller scale. So what is your advice for the smaller companies, perhaps the less resource companies on how to be thinking about this? Because all of the things that we know is that, you know, from the start, it's the larger companies that seem to really be out in front of this. Um, and the latter, the smaller companies often expressing frustration or being overwhelmed and even how to begin and then what to even share publicly. So love to get your thoughts on this and maybe some examples from your experience on how you've done that. You know, it's it's an incredibly important point. I heard in a recent podcast um, several months ago that Brian Moynihan, Bank of America, was talking about this because they're major players in this arena globally. And he said, you know, having standards that we can all agree on, this is so important. ESG is now well understood by the large cap public companies. It will all trickle down now as a matter of just this is how it you know, will happen to the mid caps and the smaller companies who aren't already doing these things. This will all, you know, um, cascade down to them. And I kept thinking, I agree with that, but you don't want it to be an avalanche <laughs> that buries them. So and but right now, part of the issue for small companies is I think um, they have lots on their plate. Can you imagine telling them, oh, in this pandemic year, you need to add this to what you aren't yet really doing and focused on other than in a tactical way um, with say gender equity and, and racial and ethnic equity. Um, so I think it starts simple and I think it's put one foot in front of the other. And I would do that as, you know, again, speaking from having to doing this with both a large company years ago, but then starting more recently with a mid cap company. Um, honestly, we took a look at what was behind our ISS scores. 
And there are like literally scores, if not hundreds of criteria listed of topics and things that they expect to find on your website somewhere, find in your proxy. Um, if you put out a CSR report, you should be thinking about converting that into something that includes this broader category of things. Um, but first of all, assess what you're already doing. I mean, these are some of the things we were talking about before. Here's what I don't want companies to do. Um, I'm a former regulatory lawyer, and I don't want companies to think of this as compliance. This isn't about compliance. And in fact, Ron O'Hanley said something really important uh, during our forum. He said, at SSGA, we don't tell companies what they have to do. We discuss with them why these things are important to us, to our, to our, the companies that we're investing in, you know, other companies on their behalf, um, to the foundations, to the, um, to the school endowments, um, to the pension funds. It's why as asset managers, we're asking you about what you're doing about these things, but we're not telling you. And I think companies need to incorporate that thinking. This is, first of all, best practices for you as a company. Then the second, so you assess what do, you know, just do a survey internally. What's important to us? I'll tell you something that really worked at Boston Private. We quickly engaged senior management sponsors and a team of frontline workers who crossed company functions to identify all the things we were doing and the ones that were important for us for material reasons to do as well. So we put those together and there's nothing like engaging your employees in this ESG journey because millennials, I know this from 12 years at Bentley, <laughs> uh, millennials and now the Gen Zs who I had the chance to meet, you know, a couple of years before I left, they're demanding that companies care about these things and they want the transparency. So start biting off the things that are most important to you. And one of those will absolutely be your people and what you're doing around diversity and inclusion. Clearly, you're going to galvanize your entire employee base around environmental concerns. Everyone in the company is going to care about, can't we do things better? Um, and, and for our own industry sector, not oil and gas, we're talking about banking and wealth management. So, you know, that's a, it's a different category. Um, but I think each company should just be thinking through their lens What's our purpose? What are we doing that, that is, you know, in terms of products and services? And again, to your point um, that you've stressed several times, and who are the stakeholders who matter? Our employees, um, but clearly our investors. So let's go outside and our clients. For example, at Boston Private, we have successively every year added to our ESG lens in terms of the investments we're making on behalf of our clients, our banking and investment clients. Uh, so that's, you know, that lens is one that we'd be applying because it's important to us to continuously innovating with products and services, but it's really important to our customers who are telling us, we want you to be looking through this lens. So I think if you're doing that sort of broad, and again, you don't have to go outside and hire expensive consultants to do all of this as your base case. Um, and then test, once you put this basic set of factors together, the things that are important to you in these categories, then test it. Boston Private did an R-factor analysis too. We went to SSGA and we said, you know what? Why don't you run us through your system? Here's the framework. Here's what we're doing, the things we're doing. Here's the things we aspire to do. Um, tell us how we're doing and how we rank with our peers. And what we found was um, similar to what we found in our initial round at Unum a couple of years earlier. We found that we were sort of um, Malcolm in the middle that we were doing, you know, sort of, you know, not too hot, not too cold, but doing just right for that early part of the journey. And then make sure you keep building on your plans because it is not just this, okay, we're already doing these things. Um, so let's just rest on our laurels. No, because this is an evolving situation. The things that are more and more important have been already discussed in our conversation because of the pandemic and other factors. Um, start looking at the road ahead and make your plans accordingly for what for, is right for your company. I can't overstress this is never going to be one size fits all. It is not something you pull off a shelf. This is something you're going to, it's bespoke. Every company is going to have their own version of ESG, and there's nothing wrong with it, with your version, unless you're just using some tactics and moving it aside. The key is to make sure you're actually integrating it into your strategy 
And then that there's that that's being further deepened because it's being seen. You can see the threads through your operations, that you're measuring what you're doing wherever possible, and that you're then disclosing to the world what you're doing with pride, but anticipating you know future advances as well um, in all the right places. And that should be your annual report, your proxy, your website, um, and some kind of when you're able to do it for the smallest of companies, some sort of sustainability report where you can sort of put all of this in one place. Now, that, that makes so much sense. And I think the, the key thing is just get started. Just start. Don't, don't let the fear of the enormity of this hold you back, but, but start. Start small, start smart, and engage. Um, I think we've heard that one um, loud and clear. So thank you for all of that. So one of the other areas I do, I'd be remiss if I didn't cover, is we've just had a significant power change in Washington, and already we can see a distinct shift in President Biden's policies with respect to climate change and other ESG-friendly initiatives, including potentially the direction that the SAC may choose to head under Democratic-controlled commission. So in our 2021 uh, BDO board poll survey this winter, we uh, found that 25% of public company board members cited that enhancing sustainability reporting is one of the top three ESG priorities in the near term, so over the next 12 to 18 months. And then that figure rises to about 29% over the next 18 to 36 months. And I suspect if we took another pulse in a few months, we would see that figure continue to rise. So I want to ask you, what do the discussions in the boardroom sound like now that the election has been determined and that the Biden agenda is perhaps becoming a bit more into focus? Well, I think we're really cognizant that um, what we're doing is now very likely to, um, in some distinctive areas, be required. Um, through the SEC through disclosure requirements, um, whether that's you know better data around environmental, how you're mitigating environmental impacts, um, absolutely human capital. There's already disclosure around human capital, but it's one of those things that's up to each company to disclose what's material. I think there will be more. We're, we're going to see more definition, um, and I think it's really interesting to sort of watch the debate that's going to unfold um, because. Groups like BlackRock that have been leading the charge, Larry Fink, you know, every year coming out with an, you know, ever um, heightened expectations for the companies that they're um, investing in. I think that he, his hope and the business roundtable, and I think the hope of many in the, the corporate world has been with pride, we're driving this train. Well, this is where driving the train meets regulatory um, uh, <laughs> regulatory engineers are going to want to help drive that train. <laughs> so I think we're going to have to see a meeting of the minds. And what I'm going to tell you as a former, you know, sort of reformed <laughs> or <laughs> retired regulator myself, Federal Trade Commission for many years, and then in the Weld Administration, I, I have to tell you, I'm hoping it's where reasonable folks, we're all on the same journey. And it's being led by really thoughtful lead asset managers that we've already been talking about and others. Um, and I think that having the Biden administration match its intellectual wits with those in industry and bring everybody who cares about this to the table in a thoughtful way, as it should be somewhere between laissez-faire, which is a world we've been living in um, for in terms of national regulatory impact, and command and control. I'm sort of fall in the middle and believe that you can come up with um, with what I call safe harbors for companies so that if you're doing the right things in the right ways, um, you're protected in terms of liability. But I do think this is what I think is important. I think it's really important. I'm such a fan of the underscoring of how important ESG is in the Biden administration's perspective. They genuinely believe in this. Um, it's going to be important. The, um, it's um, uh, it's Larry Gensler, right, who's in line potentially. Yeah, 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 yeah to be yep. hasn't been hasn't been confirmed yet, but from That's MIT right. Sloan. Um, but I also just read that they've hired the um, PRI expert on ESG, who I think has been teaching at NYU, to be the inside in-house expert on ESG, environment and ESG more broadly within the SEC. So That's right. They created a new position, a senior advisory. So, so within, yep, that's right. So here we have this, you know, if, you know, if you're looking in the boardroom for clues about what's about to happen, 
Yep. You can see this is going to be a dramatic shift, but it could be a dramatic shift. I think if the corporate world rises to the occasion, this is always, you know, um, hopefulness on my part, aspirational, um, because I think we've been doing that. And I think this last year has sort of re started to reinforce that. Um, and I think that's what we heard from Ron O'Hanley. I think if we join forces with the, the um, administration, we can do this in sort of that centrist way that brings everyone to the table with goodwill around, let's do this in a way that is far more protective of the environment than we've been able to be in the past, that really draws a ring around these incredibly important social uh, issues that must be addressed and clearly maintains the right level of, of oversight that governance has always ensured for the corporate world um, uh, of when, when, they're, when they're willing to, to to do things in just the right way um, in the always do the right thing category. And I think that you have what's exciting to me is that the corporate world has been leading this charge. So I think that we're going to see, I think, a meeting of the minds in Washington with what the leaders have been doing. That doesn't include everybody um, and it never will. But in my regulatory experience, having lived through many different administrations, um, if you have the majority of companies aspiring in, with ESG to make this part of long-term sustainability about value, not simply values, um, I think that it will go a long way to having um, just that right sense of direction before the SEC has to come out with its disclosure requirements. They'll just underscore what good companies are already doing. Now, I agree with that. That last statement certainly resounds with, with myself and, and others. Um, so, so, Gloria, we're recording this in early February. And so we're on the doorstep of year-end 10K filings, proxy season, and um, shareholder meetings. <laughs> so uh, just maybe some crystal balling on your part. And maybe not really, because it's obviously there's very clear indicators of what's going to be happening this season. So in your mind, what are the big ticket items that you expect to be, you know, concerns for your shareholders that both boards and management teams need to be thinking about and responding to? Well, it's interesting that you ask because um, Unum's board meeting is next week. And next week I'll be having a governance committee meeting. And I've already seen the materials <laughs> that discuss what's on um, shareholders' minds from our perspective. And um, it's, you know, to the very point of this, um, of this discussion, the first thing is changes that you and other companies have made to your comp plans, um, because this has been such an, you know, extraordinarily challenging and different year. And the financial goals have shifted clearly for companies um, in most sectors, if not all, uh, and have brought, you know, levels of hardship and difficulty. Some companies have used retention agreements, others have, you know, done other things to try to adjust um, to, you know, not make this um, overly punitive given the external realities. So there can be a lot of questions, though, about how you've handled your comp plan. A major element of that is going to be, which is different, of course, is what's your pandemic response been as a company? How are you thinking about resiliency considerations? How have they factored into those comp decisions? As I just alluded to, that's going to be important. And then clearly, we've heard this from BlackRock. I think SGA drew a big red circle around it, um, and Vanguard as well, that um, in addition to gender, race and ethnicity are going to be central. What are you doing? And it's not simply at the board level. They're saying we'll vote against at the board level if you don't take action. But what they're doing is driving this um, as well as they possibly can down, down through the company so that you're making this core to what how you think about um, your enterprise from this long-term resilience, continuity, um, and, and growth perspective. And then the last thing is um, on our list is Corporate sustainability programs, um, it's what we hear from all of our lead investors, uh, most, you know, the top three are among them. Um, our focus on ESG has been extraordinarily important to our investors and will be this proxy season more than ever. Because again, as Ron so eloquently put it, this, the pandemic, the social unrest and other factors have clearly made ESG central in terms of the companies that are proving they have that continuity, that resilience that will allow them to continue um, forward and have the long-term value and sustainability that as long-term investors, SSGA, Vanguard, and BlackRock so want for their clients. 
Well, thank you so much for that. And, and I'm happy to hear what you just described because we do have our sh annual shareholder meeting alert coming out just to kind of remind folks what's what's prevalent, what we're seeing, what we're hearing. And we have all of those top three and a few more, including um, how companies are specifically handing that human capital management piece, uh, board refreshment, what does your board composition truly look like? And again, this ties back to everything we've just been talking about. Um, and then certain things around such things as fairness for shareholders when they're attending virtual meetings. So we heard a lot about that in the last proxy season where a lot of this was newer, where we had to move to the virtual meeting mode and how to capture shareholder questions fairly and responsibly. So lots going on. I think you're going to hear more and more too about strategic oversight in respect to liquidity and M&A transactions, all kinds of stuff. So please stay tuned for that. And Gloria, I just really wanted to thank you so much. I want to give you the last word here, but I'm very happy to have had you on today. So any parting comments for our listeners? You know, um, I think ESG for a long time was considered to be um, an incredibly good to have, nice to have, not required to have. And um, I smile a lot about that because one of the reasons that I left my law firm, Foley Hoag in Boston, for um, this uh, wacky, you know, second career as a college president was because I worked so much with the business community and I had for so long seen the companies that valued things beyond shareholder returns just intuitively. They just seem to, to shine. Um, but it used to be considered a bit fringe. Um, when I started at Bentley as president in 2007, already our business uh, disciplines um, had this overarching approach that was called triple bottom line thinking. It was people, planet, profit in equal measure. And it was well represented at that point by companies like Whole Foods and um, Ben and & Jerry's and Patagonia and the companies that we think of as those sustainability focused companies. Well, I love now that we're talking, you know, this, um, it, it's taken a long time, but really accelerated so dramatically, I think once the major asset managers took up these, these um, responsibilities as being, required for the long-term value of their uh, of their clients. And I think that's the critical piece. So I end with, you know, what Ron O'Hanley has taught me. He's a fellow board member at Unum, so I learned a tremendous amount from him. Um, but because he used to head SSGA and now, of course, is the CEO for, for all of State Street, um, his really zeroing in on lose the idea that this is just about good corporate values. Every company, of course, should have them. But this is really about the long term. And how are you with very different considerations than a CEO might have made 20 years ago? Um, how are you going to really ensure the sustainability of the long run? Where's your growth going to come from? Um, where are you going to find the resilience to continue in the face of challenges that we can't predict today, just as we couldn't predict well what just happened to us? Um, and I think that's what ESG more and more, I think, um, directors and their company leaders, uh, the senior management teams are recognizing that this is essential set of ingredients for that long-term success. Well, Gloria, thank you so much. I really enjoyed speaking with you today. Hope you'll consider coming back and look forward to, to more from BDO's podcast series. Thank you again. Thank you for listening to BDO in the Boardroom. Past episodes and related insights are available at bdo.com slash BDO Boardroom. Or you can go to iTunes or Spotify to rate, review, and subscribe. The views expressed by our guests do not necessarily reflect the views of BDO. For more information on the BDO Center for Corporate Governance and Financial Reporting and the resources we provide, visit bdo.com slash bdo knows governance.